Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So, this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. It's Monday the 8th of December 1941 and newspaper boys are in the streets screaming war as they sell the city's afternoon tabloids to stun Sydney siders. This morning, Australia awoke to the radio news that Japan was bombing the US naval bases at Pearl Harbour and invading British Malaya. Since then, journalists, photographers, editors, compositors, typesetters and printers have been in a mad scramble to get out special early war editions. The Daily Mirror hits the street with the headline, Japanese attack on Malaya and Hawaii, great naval and air battles in progress. The Sun goes with Pacific ablaze, Japs bomb Singapore and USA bases. British reported in big naval action, seven places attacked over great area. All day and into the night, updated war editions roll off the presses with the first drafts of history. Japan has officially declared war on the US and Britain and have attacked not only Hawaii and Malaya, but also the Philippines, Hong Kong and Thailand. They've sunk two cruisers off Singapore and are making a three-pronged advance towards this bastion of British power. American President Franklin D. Roosevelt has ordered the immediate mobilisation of all 1.6 million military personnel In Sydney, hundreds of men surge to enlist, while police round up Japanese and take them away to be processed and interned. Workers in overalls pay strips of brown paper in crisscross patterns over windows to stop glass showering in all directions when it's shattered by bomb concussions. 
everywhere, shoppers are rushing to buy blackout paper. With all this excitement going on, how many Sydney siders can afford to give much thought to the terrible news from the city's southwest that a railway pay car has been blown up? On any other day, it'd be front page of The Sun and The Daily Mirror. Instead, their reports about this atrocious crime are deeper inside their pages, and so far provide only the basics. Driver George Randall and guard Alfred Philpot are dead. Seriously wounded paymaster Fred Walker is fighting for his life in Barrel Hospital. Police are looking for two dark-complexioned, dark-haired men in khaki shorts and dark sleeveless shirts. These men, who may be foreigners, fled the scene. All members of the public should be on the lookout for these men, and in fact, for anyone acting oddly. But what exactly is oddly on a day like today? The day the Second European War has truly become the Second World War. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the second and final part of the Forgotten Australia episode, Pearl Harbour and the Paycar Ambush. All four parts of the linked episode, The Terrible Mr. Thomas, are available now, early and ad-free, to Patreon supporters and Apple subscribers. Links are in your show notes. On that first day of the Paycar blast, it had been suggested the bandits had meant to blow up the tracks just before the rail car reached the spot. Once it had been derailed, they would have stuck up the crew while they were still dazed, made them open the safe, and then taken off with the cash. Except they'd waited a few moments too long to set off their bombs, turning what had been meant as a hold-up into a double murder, and probably a triple murder. That afternoon, the Daily Telegraph interviewed George Randall's brother for tomorrow's edition but he wasn't buying the theory that the robbers had somehow accidentally killed his sibling. Quote, The job was planned carefully. Whoever did it was not game to face the railcar crew. They were armed and everybody knew it. That first evening, police got their first promising lead. This was a description of the two men that matched that given by goods train driver Gersbach, who'd seen the bombers flee the scene. But this report said the culprits had two women accomplices. Mittagong baker Stanley Lake said at 12.45pm, one hour after the blast, he'd seen an open-topped green touring car speeding along Berrima Road towards Barrel. The driver, he said, was about 25, with a dark complexion and wearing a black sleeveless pullover and a black beret. He had two days' growth of beard. Beside him in the front of the car was a blonde woman. In the back of the car was another bloke with dark hair. A dark-haired woman was leaning over him, as though caring for him because he was hurt, and this brunette had also been looking furtively behind the vehicle as if she was worried they were being pursued. Was the man in the back seat the bandit that driver Gersbach said he'd seen tumbling down the embankment as he made his escape? It certainly sounded like it. By 7 that night, 50 police were searching the area from Sydney's southwestern outskirts right down to Goulburn. Warnings had been sent to hospitals, doctors and to chemists in case the injured robber sought treatment. At 4 o'clock the next morning, Wednesday the 9th of December 1941, paymaster Fred Walker, having never regained consciousness, succumbed to his terrible injuries at the district hospital in Barrel. 
Three men dead. Three women robbed of their husbands. Six children mourning their fathers. And a generation who'd never know their grandfathers. The railcar robbers were now triple murderers. Right as the nation was facing an existential threat to its existence and was officially at war with Japan. That day, the Daily Telegraph editorialised that, quote, for the first time in her 150 years of history, Australia is directly open to attack. We are now in the front line of a fight to the finish between the civilised world and the new barbarians. The railcar massacre coverage was even further back in that day's papers. The Daily Telegraph's report, though, brought home the horror with three photographs. One, a medium close-up, was of the mangled railcar, front windows smashed, carriage crushed, wheels pointed to the sky. Another wider shot showed where the ruptured and flipped railcar had come to rest 40 feet down the embankment. The third was a picture of a local bloke handing four five-pound notes he'd found 75 yards from the blast to a uniformed copper. These newspaper reports said the robbers had chosen an ideal spot for their attack. The railcar had had to slow on the bend and there was bush in every direction. They'd clearly known the railcar's schedule. If not for the unscheduled troop train delaying it by 10 or more minutes, they would have had another 10 minutes to scoop up all of the cash. Detectives believe the bandits were still in the southwest. They found a country edition of a Sydney newspaper near the burned-out log the robbers had hidden behind. The police believed the pages had been used to wrap the bomb components. As this edition wasn't sold in the city, it led them to think the men were locals, or at least hiding out locally. Further, if they were in the getaway car with the women, they would hardly have gone unnoticed in Sydney, dressed as they were in shorts and sleeveless shirts. As the Daily Telegraph said, quote, Hardly the clothes for a man who proposed to escape into a city. By Wednesday, there were 70 police on the manhunt. Despite what the newspapers were saying, some detectives were wondering just how professional these bombers had been. They'd wrecked the vehicle in the crudest manner possible. A detective said to the Daily Mirror, quote, Enough gelignite was placed on the track to blow up the side of a mountain. He said while the crooks were definitely of the gangster type, they didn't seem to know anything about explosives or how to use them. But police admitted that they were no closer to catching these men. As the Daily Mirror put it, quote, There are so many bush tracks and country roads, they might be anywhere at the present juncture. Police theorised the bandits had established a bush hideout in advance of their crime and were sheltering there now until the heat died down. The search for that supposed getaway car soon extended all the way to the Victorian border. Maybe someone would see it parked off a road near the hideout. It'd be pretty hard to miss. The official description said it was a quote, hoodless touring car, greenish or black in colour, maybe a Chevrolet or an old eight-cylinder Hudson Brougham with a dilapidated hood and minus one rear wheel cap. Detectives were satisfied that this old beater, fully gassed up, had been parked nearby before the blast. So they wanted anyone to come forward who'd seen that car or any similar sort of vehicle in the area on the morning of the attack. Other information was given that was at once corroborative and contradictory. A Sydney businessman told the police that five days before the bombing, he'd been hailed by two men and two women on a road at Camden. 
His descriptions of these four were a close match to the information the police had already released about their suspects. Yet this quartet didn't seem to have a car, at least not then. They'd tried to get a lift with this Sydney businessman, and when he refused, they abused him. In the days and even weeks after the blast, the New South Wales Railways Department would be fairly cagey about how much money, if any, the crooks had gotten away with. Publicly, the line was that any money unaccounted for had probably been destroyed in the explosion. But in reality, they soon had a pretty clear picture of what had happened. £2,689 had been paid out before the explosion. In total, from the safe and what was handed in by the public, the department recovered £6,103. That meant £2,439 remained unaccounted for. Given some of the loose cash would have been destroyed by the blast and that more would have been spirited away by light-fingered onlookers, it was a far smaller haul than the bandits had hoped for. To get their hands on this modest sum, they'd committed what one senior detective told the Daily Telegraph was, quote, the worst crime in Australia in my 30 years' experience. Frustratingly, the police's best lead, the old green touring car speeding along the Berrima Road, proved a dead end within days. A Mittagong miner came forward to say he'd been driving the car. He'd borrowed the vehicle to try out some shale petrol. Yes, he'd had a woman in the front with him, but the woman in the back had actually been with two children rather than an injured dark-haired man. Nevertheless, the alert for two men and two women remained in effect due to what the Sydney businessman had said about the abusive hitchhiking foursome. Railway workers were absolutely appalled by the murders of the money car crew. They'd known and they'd liked the men who'd been killed. Gangers, fettlers, timekeepers, station masters, they all assisted police by providing the names of blokes who'd worked along this section but subsequently left, just in case it had been former employees using their knowledge to pull off this job. Detectives would check the details supplied against criminal records. They were also looking at railway workers who'd been absent or on leave that day. Given the appearances of the men, possibly foreign, wearing khaki shorts, police also checked all alien subjects and members of the military who were on leave or absent without leave at the time of the bombings. The CIB would also have been looking at men with form for such crimes. Just over a decade earlier, Billy Mackay, who was now police commissioner, had introduced the MO system, that is, the modus operandi system, to create a new record-keeping and filing system for detectives. Since then, when a crime was committed, clerks could easily pull the files of felons who had committed such offences previously. No doubt, detectives from Sydney's CIB were looking hard at two men in particular. That's because these blokes had been involved in two of the most daring train robberies in Australian history. An hour before midnight on the 8th of April 1930, two revolver-toting masked bandits burst into a guards van on the Mudgee Mail train as it left Emu Plains to climb the Blue Mountains. Punching the guard and threatening and disarming his escort, they grabbed checks and securities worth £13,000 and seized a bullion chest containing £4,600 in cash. 
As the train slowed down near the Glenbrook Tunnel, the robbers tossed the chest, jumped from the guard's van and got into a getaway car. The case was a sensation. Headline news day after day. But no one was caught. Just over a year later, there was another less dangerous robbery, but one that was utterly confounding. A train guard was taking £10,000 in cash in a bag that was inside another leather bag on the Canberra Mail Train. When this service stopped at Queenbian, he set the satchel down for a few moments, looked away, picked it up and continued on to Canberra. There, it was discovered that the inside bag had been switched out. This guard had delivered scraps of old paper and bits of rubber. Two weeks later, following information received from a crim under arrest, high-profile Sydney CIB men watched a Penrith farm owned by a fellow named George Morris. He was a crook who'd come up from Melbourne a few years earlier. When they searched the property, detectives found £7,600 buried in a thicket. George Morris turned crown witness to save his skin. He admitted to having driven the mudgy robbery getaway car and to also have been in on the Canberra train job. Another of the mudgy gang also gave evidence. This guy said he'd been one of the robbers in the guards van. Together, these two men claimed that Joseph Ryan, a well-known Darlinghurst crim, had been the one who'd assaulted the guard. They also fingered another bloke who hadn't even been there, but who'd received some of the cash. Joe Ryan, also implicated in the Canberra robbery, absconded before trial. The other man got a minor sentence. George Morris and his fellow Crown witness walked free in return for their cooperation. In 1935, after Joe Ryan turned himself in, he'd repeatedly stand trial, but he was acquitted on each occasion, the jury clearly unable to accept the word of his crooked mates. What would have really piqued police interest in terms of George Morris for the Yandera job was that he'd also been suspected of having made the explosives used in the 1928 Melbourne bombing of a Greek club that had left 15 people wounded. George Morris had been confronted with this at the 1931 committal hearing into the Canberra train case but he had admitted he'd known the men involved in that Melbourne bombing. By December 1941, Morris was running a garage in Alexandria, but he was still secretly dabbling in safe-cracking and stolen vehicles. Joe Ryan, meanwhile, hadn't been in court again, though he was still moving in shady circles. Another suspect that Sydney police were likely looking at had also originally come from Melbourne. This was Lionel Charles Thomas, a.k.a. Thomas Edward Croft, and we're going to hear all about him in the next episode. But for now, it's enough to know he had a knowledge of railways, had been convicted of violent robbery in Sydney, and was suspected of far worse in both Sydney and Melbourne, including the murder of a railway worker during a botched stick-up. He also reportedly repeatedly worked with one male accomplice and two women. Further, Lionel Thomas was a dead match for the man that driver Gersbach had described at the scene of the railcar blast. 35 years old, tall, medium build, dark hair and dark eyes with a definite Mediterranean look. And what's more, in December 1941, no one knew where he was. He'd been released from Pentridge in mid-July. Since then, 
it was as though he'd dropped off the face of the earth. By Thursday, the 11th of December, 15 detectives had been sent from Sydney and Parramatta stations and, with 90 country coppers, they were searching a 200-mile radius, tramping through hot mountainous bush. The next day, Friday the 12th, Hitler declared war on the United States. That evening, Sydney was to be browned out for the first time. There'd be no late-night shopping. Neon and other illuminated signs would be extinguished. Car headlights had to be fitted with masks to subdue illumination and drivers had to obey a 20 mile per hour speed limit. Newspapers carried silhouettes to help readers identify Japanese bombers overhead and advice from the London Blitz about what to do if the bombs fall. The investigation into the pay car bombing was now in its fifth day. A detective from the Scientific Investigations Bureau had a new angle. He'd found coal stuck in cotton that had been a round part of one of the detonator wires. This suggested the wires had been used in a coal mine. So police started making investigations at collieries, which might also have been a source of stolen gelignite. A week and a half after the bombing, the government and the railways offered a combined £1,500 reward for any information leading to an arrest and conviction. A free pardon would also be given to anyone not directly involved in the murders. The reward was feasibly bigger than whatever the crooks had gotten away with. Yet, it didn't shake loose any new information of any use. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A few days after Christmas, the 12 crew members of the four remaining railway pay cars said they wanted them abolished and for the government to revert to the old system for delivering wages. One reason was to save petrol, which was now a precious wartime resource, and the other was that they were simply, and quite reasonably, afraid of being held up and killed. They were quoted collectively as telling the government there would be much less chance of bandits trying to derail or hold up a train carrying a payroll than a rail car in charge of three men. Steam trains carrying payrolls might be delayed a little while the money is being paid out at different stations, but the delay would be compensated by the saving in petrol. The state government refused their request. They'd continue to work in what were clearly dangerous conditions. Rail pay cars wouldn't be abolished until 1968. At the end of the year, detectives made public more scientific evidence. At the railway line, near the blast scene, two badly pitted steel discs had been discovered. Each was six inches in diameter, three-eighths of an inch thick, with a three-sixteenth of an inch hole drilled into its centre. 
these weren't recognised by the railway as having belonged to the rail car. They were thought to have been used in the explosive devices. The police asked that any tradesman or firm who might recognise them call them immediately. The police had a list of some 6,000 companies and private owners of steel cutting equipment that could have been used to manufacture these discs throughout the state. They had to make inquiries with all of them. In the meantime, the scientific squad set about recreating these homemade bombs. Nearly a month later, cops were still checking into those steel discs. In the first week of February, the scientific branch unveiled their recreated explosive devices. They were effectively large pipe bombs that had been packed with explosive. Photos of these devices appeared in the newspapers, with police appealing for anyone with any information to come forward. On the 15th of February 1942, Singapore fell to the Japanese. Four days later, the first Japanese bombs fell on Darwin. Unsurprisingly, with no new developments, the railcar massacre slipped out of the newspapers. But behind the scenes, over the dying days of summer, all through autumn and into spring, detectives continued to investigate. A coronial inquest was announced for the 12th of October 1942. Just a week before that, the vulnerability of the railcars and the overkill used in the robbery was demonstrated once again. The money train crew who'd taken over from their dead comrades on the Southern Line route were returning from Goulburn, having paid out all their cash when their railcar hit a stone placed on the track a mile north of Mittagong. The driver, guard and paymaster surely saw their lives flash before their eyes as their vehicle derailed and overturned. And surely they thanked their lucky stars when the dust settled and they found they were all uninjured. The Daily Telegraph reported that police believe this was, quote, the result of a boyish prank. In mid-century Australia, coronial inquests and criminal trials involving murder usually attracted a crowd. Often courtrooms were packed out. But when the coronial inquest into the railcar massacre opened at Berrimah Court, there wasn't a single spectator. It really was as though it had been forgotten. This legal proceeding, though, put the bombing into the newspapers all over again. Yet stories didn't tell readers who remembered much of anything new. Driver Gersbach testified of finding the wreck and the dead and dying men. Dr. Noel Solomon said the injuries suffered by the victims indicated the blast had been huge. As for motive, detectives testified that it was not sabotage. The men responsible had been solely intent on wrecking the rail car and stealing the payroll. Detectives outlined their investigations, from visiting coal mines that used the same sort of detonator wire, to showing the reconstructed bomb to engineers, from checking the movements of aliens to inquiring into absent or on-leave military personnel. After hearing evidence for three days, the coroner said the crime was, quote, one of the most wicked I have ever heard of, and, quote, it is obvious that the killers had no value for life. He found that George Randall, Alfred Philpot, and Fred Walker had been maliciously and feloniously murdered by a person or persons unknown. That same day, that same verdict was delivered in the city coroner's court in relation to another murder. 
and this triggered Truth newspaper into going into one of its occasional rants about Sydney detectives failing to solve homicides. Its headline read, Unsolved Killings, Disgrace to State. This article said it was a matter of urgency that the New South Wales government find the best brains for administration and detective work. The force, it said, was being hampered by favouritism and nepotism. This was a broadside fired at Inspector Frank Matthews, Chief of the CIB, and his boss, Commissioner Billy Mackay. True said that the Premier had to lay down the law. Get your man or else. In the case of the Yandera bombing, they were getting absolutely nowhere. Then, at the end of March 1943, the case was back in the news. George Morris, that squealer who testified against his accomplice Joe Ryan in the Mudgee and Canberra train robbery cases, had been lured to Miller's Point and murdered gangster-style, six bullets in the head, six in his body, fired from two different revolvers. Someone had wanted him very, very dead. Police were initially reported to believe that George Morris, the man who in the past had talked too much and too often, was shot to pieces because he was about to spill the beans about who'd been behind the 1941 Yandera Paycar bombing. Certainly, George Morris was then only weeks away from facing court in a £2,000 safe-cracking robbery. Had he been about to trade what he knew about Yandera for his freedom? Detectives would soon officially deny any connection. George Morris's old gangmate Joe Ryan was arrested for his murder and committed to trial, but the charges were later dropped. George Morris's gangland slaughter wasn't solved, and it would become accepted that he'd been killed as part of Sydney's Baccarat Wars of the early to mid-1940s. It wasn't until three years after Japan's surrender ended the Second World War that the Yandera case was again back in the headlines. On Sunday the 28th of November 1948, William Hanna, a 59-year-old waterboard worker, was enjoying a bushwalk when his dog led him into a cave near the junction of Bingo Creek and Little River. This was about three and a half miles from Yandera. At the mouth of the cave, William found a burned-down candle. Beyond, in the darkness, there were a lot of discarded items. Among them, a Commonwealth coin bag in slightly perished condition and a bunch of similar coin bags. Seven rusty skeleton keys. Several bits of rag with what looked like bloodstains. An envelope with Yandera on it and the date 1941. There was also a railway detonator. Seven years after the crime had been committed, the railcar robbery was finally front-page news. The Daily Mirror headline read, Cave find may give clue to sensational theft. 1941 train explosion. The article recounted the facts of the forgotten case and was accompanied by photos of the bombs as reconstructed by the police's scientific bureau. Meanwhile, bushwalker Mr. Hanna told The Sun that he'd found other things in the cave. Among these were two Japanese postage stamps, a post office date stamp for 1942 and a 22 caliber bullet and a broken padlock. Mr. Hanna told the paper that at first he thought the stuff he'd found had come from a farm robbery committed around these parts about three years earlier. It was only when he mentioned his find to a local 
that this local told him about the Yandera Paykar bombing. Detectives visited the cave and searched other caves nearby. Within days, they declared it was a hoax. They said these so-called clues had been planted by practical jokers who'd hiked through the area recently. Part of the reason for this was the stamp dated 1942. It could hardly have been there in 1941. The police also believed some of the items found had only been in the cave a few days. The information given in newspaper reports at the time was quite limited. But what didn't quite make sense in the police's explanation was how practical jokers would have known that upstanding waterboard worker William Hanna would find their fake clues so very quickly. Or how they knew he'd end up reporting them to the police rather than thinking the stuff in the cave was just a bunch of old rubbish. In any event, the railcar mystery died down again. Then, in April 1951... Sydney detectives made a stunning claim. They had for a long time been almost certain of who had committed the Yandera bombing outrage. Lionel Charles Thomas. As The Sun reported, quote, To this day, the responsibility for this shocking murder has never been sheeted home to anyone, but for years detectives engaged in the murder hunt had the name of Thomas at the top of their list of suspects. However, they were never able to obtain sufficient evidence to justify a murder charge against Thomas. Thing was, by the time I was researching this episode about Pearl Harbor and the Paycar ambush, I already had amassed a large file on Lionel Charles Thomas, aka Thomas Edward Croft. That was because I'd planned an episode about the massive manhunt for him in 1950. Once I learned of his link to the Yandera case, I wanted to find out if he really was the bomber. Thanks to contributions from Apple subscribers and Patreon supporters, I was able to access files from the National Archives of Australia that have provided what I consider to be the definitive answer. I'm telling his story in the next four-part episode, The Terrible Mr. Thomas. It really is a killer story about a ruthless killer. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. The Terrible Mr. Thomas will be released over the next two weeks, but all installments are available now, early and ad-free, for Apple subscribers and Patreon supporters. The links are in your show notes. As always, thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.